Why don't you stand as I read the passage this morning? Back into Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. It's on page 812 in the Pew Bible. Jesus speaks. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. God, we thank you for speaking to us verbally through your son, Jesus. Jesus' words, Jesus' teaching is the wisdom and the truth and the authority of God on high. In Jesus, we see that God, who's existed eternally, broke into life as we know it, becoming a man and teaching us the things of God. And so I thank you for this teaching, this word from Jesus, which is the wisdom and truth and the authority of God, and I pray that it would instruct us this morning. Thank you preserving it, for preserving it over the generations through the church leaders and through the apostles and the prophets and the scribes and those who have carefully detailed this word so that we could hear from you this morning. May it come alive to us for your glory, for our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, over the last couple of years, the Barna Group has done some surveying of Christianity in America and the impression of Christianity in America. And in 2014, part of their study, they, they surveyed a specific group of millennials, and they surveyed more than millennials, but they targeted millennials in this one study and asked about their general impression of Christianity. And out of this group, those who don't attend a church, millennials, that is like 18 to 35-year-olds, I forget uh, the exact age numbers right now, but younger adults, out of this group that they surveyed, those who didn't attend church, 87% said they see the church, the Christian church in America, as judgmental. 85% said that they see the Christian church in America as hypocritical. And 91% said they see the American church as anti-gay, which would make sense if you put all those together. Let's put those together this morning and assume that the 91% of anti-gay has to do with judgmental and hypocritical. Some of you probably hear that stat and you you react and you think, no, we're not, right? I mean, you're in. You're in the group. You know the people. and, And you think, well, I'm not judgmental. They're judgmental for calling me judgmental. I'm not hypocritical. Or, or the people, the, the amazing people that I grew up with in the church who I know, who I've loved for years, they're anything but judgmental. They're anything but hypocritical. They're anything but anti-gay. Maybe they have a, a biblical stance of marriage, but they surely don't, don't hate those struggling with same-sex attraction. And, and they're not judgmental. They're not hypocritical. They're some of the most amazing people in the world. In fact, that's what I think about the church as I think through my interactions with many of you, my my understanding of many of you, and my conversations and the love that many of you have for others. 
I think not judgmental, not hypocritical, not anti-gay, but loving, compassionate, seeking to understand, wanting to care for people, meet people's needs. However, the reality of how the outside world looks in at us is very different. It's very different indeed. Now, let's consider, as you look at these stats, consider that statistics are always hard to trust, right? I mean, 97% of statistics are made up on the spot, they say. That one was made up on the spot. <laughs> Nobody says that. Um, but statistics are hard to read because there's all these different factors. What group of people were polled? Who did they ask? What was, what, what was going on in their mind in the moment that they asked it? Maybe their last interaction with a Christian felt judgmental, and so that skewed the entire response. And so keep in mind that statistics are always skewed, and keep in mind that millennials are hard to trust, and so take it with a grain of salt. Take it with a grain of salt. But the reality is, and I, and I think we know this, the reality is that many people see the Christian church as judgmental and hypocritical. And that's exactly what Jesus is addressing here in this passage today. His big idea in this passage is that wrongly judging others destroys community. It disregards Christ and it discredits Christianity. I mean, Jesus is going right at the heart here. He, he's talking about judging and hypocrisy. So when the world looks in on the church and says, I feel like the church, like Jesus' followers, is judgmental and hypocritical, that's kind of the world's accusation of us. That's the, the bomb that they would throw at us. And here, Jesus is addressing that very thing. Amazing. Jesus knows people. He knows culture. He knows that his followers, his church, will tend to turn judgmental and hypocritical. So here, as he's setting up his church, as he's developing his community, he's giving us a very specific teaching on being judgmental and what that means and, and what that looks like and how to, how to not judge others and how to not fall into the trap of hypocrisy which is all over in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, which we've been studying for months. I mean, hypocrisy is mentioned in almost every section. And so Jesus here is addressing the heart of mankind, saying that we tend to be judgmental and we tend to be hypocritical. And when we wrongly judge others, it destroys community. It disregards Christ because he's the one teaching us here not to judge others. So if you are judging others, you're, not only are you destroying community, but you're disregarding the teaching of Jesus Christ and you're discrediting Christianity. So Jesus here is addressing this. He's getting right at it. What I want us to do this morning is look at three things. I want us to define judging. I want us to discover reality and I want us to develop community. We're going to look through this passage. I want to define judging discover reality, and develop community. The first one, let's define judging. The word that Jesus uses here, the Greek word is krino. He says, judge not that you be not judged. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Krino is the Greek word that Jesus is using there, and it means to make a judgment call, a decision, or a choice, which is something that we all have to do in life, right? I mean, you have to decide, Starbucks or caribou? You have to decide decaf or caffeinated. Really no decision there. You have to decide baseball or football. Again, no decision. This is obvious. Some of these choices just go without saying. But you have to decide where, where are you going to shop, where are you going to eat, what people are you going to hang out with, what church are you going to be a part of, how are you going to spend your money. Making decision is a 
part of life. We have to make decision. And so Jesus here, he's using this word crino, it's to make decision. And he's not teaching us not to make wise decisions, not to make any decision at all. We have to use discernment. We have to make decision in life. But he goes on to get into the heart of judgment. Before we talk about bad judgment, let's just look at a little bit of the reality of judgment. So we have to make decisions. In fact, judges can be a great thing. And judging properly, having proper crino, proper decisions made, is a good and godly thing. We can't live without making proper decisions. People, communities, can't develop without people making proper judgments and making certain decisions. This is true in society. That's why we have the Supreme Court. That's why we have judges. That's why we have a legal system to help make decisions. This is true in the people of God and the nation of Israel. God, God knew that there needed to be a level of judgment made to actually keep communities intact and functioning Properly. To see this, let's look at Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18, verses 13 through 27. It's on page 60 in the Pew Bible. This is God's people, Israel, as they've come out of Egypt. They are being led through the wilderness by Moses, their leader, and there's judging that's happening in the community. Right judging, good crino, good judgment. And listen to how God instructs their community to set themselves up at the wisdom of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. Starting in Exodus chapter 18, verse 13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. So Moses, as a leader, is making decision. He's making crino. He is deciding what is good and right. And people are coming to him, asking for his input, asking for his judgment. All day long, morning till evening. Doesn't that sound like an exhausting job? Could you imagine a community of complaining people coming to you asking for your input on everything? Verse 14, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me and inquire of God. They have, when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statues of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, Why are you, What you are doing is not good. And, and it's not that you are judging. You are letting them know God's wisdom. It's the, it's the amount of work that was piled on his shoulders. His father-in-law says to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them known the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men and all the people, for able men from all the people, men who fear God and who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and let them judge the people at all times." Every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they shall decide themselves, for it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all this people will go to their place in peace. See how proper judgment leads to peace? 
He's saying set up a structure, set up a system where there's help, where, where proper judgment can be distributed. And when people are stuck in a mess, when your community is in crisis, when your community is complaining and arguing and fighting and can't come to an agreement, there needs to be a judgment made. And so I've set up the system of judgment. In fact, there's an entire book in the Old Testament about this. It's called Judges. And so there's this system, this process for judgment to be made, for God's wisdom to be spoken into the community. Look at verse 24. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties and tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. And so God is setting up the system in the Old Testament of judges. And in the New Testament, it's similar to elders within a church. That's kind of the transition into the New Testament. But this shows us that judgment is just a reality. Judgment has to be made. And so when Jesus says, judge not, he's, he's not He's not going against God's wisdom of the Old Testament of setting up judges, having leaders who would make decisions. And we'll continue going with this to see what he is saying. Well, let's get another look at the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 7, verses 9 through 10 and 8, 16 through 17. Let's see what it does mean to judge rightly. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against any another in your heart. See, there, there's proper, true judgment. Don't devise evil in your heart against another, but make a decision to care for those in need. And then Zechariah chapter 8, verses 16 through 17. These are the things that you shall do, God instructs his people. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your heart against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. So that's the Old Testament teaching about judging. There, there are judges and it's right when you're in conflict, when you can't come to an agreement, when the decision is muddy or it's clouded by parties who are arguing with one another. Come to somebody to help have that person help make a judgment, to make a decision, to make a crino, to decide between good and bad and to make that decision. And then he tells us what true and good judgment is. It's not to, to devise evil in your heart against another person. That's judgmentalism. That's what we're going to get to in a minute here as we flip back to the New Testament in Matthew. It's when we devise evil in our hearts or when we, when we distance people because we're making wrong or improper judgments. So back to Matthew chapter 7, Jesus here is not teaching us to not have discernment, to not make good and proper and right judgments. He's saying in verse 2, so verse 1, he says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What Jesus is doing among his community here is he's instructing them that with how you judge others is how judgment will be returned to you. He's just calling a spade a spade. He's setting up reality. He's saying, if you are a person who continually judges other people, wrongly, specifically in this text, he's talking about wrong judgment. You are going to continually be judged wrong by others. He's not teaching against 
wise judgment, right judgment, good judgment. He's, te- he's teaching against that kind of judgmentalism in our hearts that like makes an assessment of somebody else off of the clothes that they wear or the food that they eat or the cars that they drive or the words that they choose, whether those be big lofty words and, and you're not as lofty and so you judge their intellect or whether those be very common words and you are more intellectual and so you judge their, their common culture and their common language. We judge their intellect. We judge their, their status. We judge their income, whatever it may be. In junior high, you judge whether they have braces or not. You judge if they have glasses. You judge if they wear turtlenecks. You judge if everything, right? Put yourself back into junior high. Is the human heart full of judgmental putting others down? And, and then grow up. Put yourself now. What when somebody cuts you off on the road and their car is falling apart and they're smoking a cigarette, what kind of judgment do you make? See, the, the human heart, we have this tendency not to make these good, right, true judgments that seeks to lift others up. We have this tendency to tear people down so that we could elevate ourselves. Jesus here in this passage, he's teaching that true judgment is using discernment to make a wise decision. He's not teaching against using discernment. He is teaching against discrimination. Discrimination is wrong judgment, it's elevated preference, it's ignorant opinion or impaired vision. And this is what destroys community. This is why our world is divided. This is why communities can't figure out how to get along. This is why there's so much divide and and racial tension and friction because as human beings, and there's been so much wrong done, and that's some of it. Some of our history is the wrong that has been done, but deep in our hearts, we all make these wrong judgments or we elevate our preferences, right? This is the lifestyle or the culture that I prefer, I prefer middle-class white America. Think about that. And then when you have this elevated preference, if people who don't hold your same preferences move into your community and start changing your community, what type of judgments do you make? Because your preference has been elevated. Or maybe you have ignorant opinions. You just, you just think you know certain things that you haven't studied and you haven't really known. Or ultimately, impaired vision. I mean, this is really what Jesus is getting at here in this text. That all of us have impaired vision. This is what he means by when Jesus continues. So he says, judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you you use, it will be measured to you. He's saying, make right, true, and good judgments, not wrong judgments, not elevated preference, not ignorant opinion. And then he gets into impaired vision. Verse 3 says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's a funny imagery, right? I mean, how many of you picture a log in your own eye? Jesus was a carpenter, right? He was a carpenter, and so oftentimes they would get little specks of wood in their eye, and it would cause you to blink. And So they understood in this culture, they understood what he was saying. When you get something in your eye, you can't see right, and it confuses things. And so when he says, a speck in your brother's eye, his hears those following him listening they think oh yeah that that impairs your vision 
When you have a speck and you're blinking and your eyes are watery and you have to get that thing out of your eye, it impairs your vision and you can't see clearly. And here Jesus is saying, why are you worried about that speck that's causing a small portion of impaired vision in somebody else's eye when you have a log, a two-by-four, a plank in your own eye and you can't even see clearly? Jesus is addressing impaired vision. He's helping us discover reality, the reality of the human heart. He helps us discover reality, and that reality is that we all suffer from arrogance when assessing others and ignorance when assessing self. Full credit, I borrowed this phrase from Tim Mackey, a pastor in Portland. And I think it's so right and so true that we all suffer from arrogance when assessing others and ignorance when assessing self. Here's what that means, arrogance when assessing others. We, we see what they're doing, and we think that what we do is better than what they do or how we do it. I mean, parenting philosophies. Parents, how judgmental do we get around people who parent different than us? Grandparenting philosophies, I don't know, I'm not there, maybe that's a thing. You guys could tell me if it is later on or not. But, but think about your circles, your life. This is certainly true, is it not? The human heart, the, the human mind tends to look at others and then find arrogance about how we do things. And maybe some of that arrogance comes from insecurity, right? We're actually not sure that the way that we're doing things is right, but, but, but we want to make ourselves feel better, we want to puff ourselves up, and so we assume that the way that other people are doing things isn't as good and that our ways are right. We have arrogance when we assess other people. And then we have ignorance when we assess selves. We always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, don't we? Well, I know my motives. I didn't mean that. I'm not that bad. I, I can handle this. I can figure this out. I'm, at least I'm not like that person. At least I'm not like that person. At least I don't do it that way. Yeah, I, I sin, but at least I don't sin like that particular person or that often. And so Jesus here is helping us to discover reality. That's exactly what he's doing. He's saying, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own, your vision is impaired. You can't even see the faults and the wrongs in others because you have your own issues. And notice he doesn't say that other people don't have specks in their eyes. We do. This is the reality of our community, of any community, all people, and Jesus' community as well. We, we all have specks. We all have issues. We all have things that we're trying to deal with and work on. And Jesus doesn't say, why do you see the speck in your other's bright?" In your brother's eye, it's not there. He's perfect, he's clean, he's good. He says, no, don't worry about the speck before you do some self-assessment, before you look at the log in your own eye, before you search your own heart, before you understand your own process here. An example of this is 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. Let's flip there together and see this. It's on page 263 in the Pew Bible. I think this is an incredible example of arrogance when assessing others and ignorance when assessing self. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. This will be a familiar story to some, not to all. It's when David, the king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, he saw a beautiful woman bathing, Bathsheba, and David was already married. Bathsheba was married to a guy named Uriah who was out fighting the king's war. And David saw her bathing, and his heart was filled with lust, and he took her, and he slept with her, and then he murdered her husband. This is God's man. We are a dysfunctional community. And, and listen to how he is confronted here in 
2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat the morsel and drink from the cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one from his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So in this moment, David is sitting with the sin of sleeping with someone else's wife, murdering her, and Nathan comes to him and he gives him this, this analogy, this parallel of a poor guy and a rich guy. The rich guy took the poor man's lamb and gave it to someone else rather than using his own lamb to give to the traveler. And David says, what a, what, what a foolish man, what a sinner, what a self-centered jerk that, that rich guy was. See, the, the arrogance in assessing another and then what about the ignorance in assessing himself? He took one of his soldiers' wives and killed that guy. And look at what Nathan says to him, verse 7. And Nathan said to David, you are that man. Oh, could you imagine being in that conversation? And so again, there, there's, a, there's a time and a place for people to call one another out, for us to, to point out our specs. This is what Nathan is doing here for David. And God sent him, so verse 1, it says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. So God will send people into our lives to call us out, to, to call us to the carpet, to make us deal with our hidden sins and faults. But do you see the, the arrogance there in David? Arrogance when assessing others and ignorance when assessing self. He wasn't aware of his own blind spots, of his own sin, of his own log. He was concerned about the speck in this rich guy's eye and not the log in his own. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is working to develop and shape and form his community, his people. He's working to develop community. Jesus is developing a, a judgment-free community where we are safe to deal with our issues as we learn how to live out these new kingdom values. Flip back to Matthew chapter 7. Here's what Jesus is doing throughout this entire passage, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is developing this new community, this radically countercultural community of people who would live differently than the world, this, this countercultural group of people who would fight the natural impulses of the human heart and mind to judge and to be hypocritical and, and to be proud and to be boastful and all the things that Jesus has talked through in the Sermon on the Mount, to be angry, to be lustful, to be judgmental. Jesus is developing this countercultural community that would fight against the natural impulse of the human heart, the brokenness within us. Jesus is building this new community. And here, as he teaches us, not to be judgmental. He's, he's creating this safe place, this judgment-free community, this wrong judgment. He, he's not saying don't ever make a decision 
Don't ever call sin, sin, and, and apply grace where it's needed. He's, he's not saying never assess sin, never call one another out, never con- confront one another on sin. He's saying assess yourself first. Worry about your sin, worry about your heart, look at your own log, consider the log in your eye before you get obsessed with the speck in everyone else's eye. And in doing this, we will develop a judgment-free community where we're all safe to deal with our issues because it's assumed that we all have issues. And we're willing to put our issues out there for others. We don't, we don't always need them to call us out and confront us. In fact, if we take Jesus at his word and we consider our own log before we look at the specks in others' eyes, we, we shouldn't need people, really. I mean, every now and then, because we're blind and the heart is deceitful above all things, as Jeremiah 17 says, so every now and then we need somebody like David, like Nathan came to David to confront us. But more often than not, the MO of the Christian community of Jesus' church should be that we are self-disclosing our issues. We are sharing with one another in small, trusted communities. This is one of the reasons why we do community groups and and core groups, so so that we can come and say, guys, I've been assessing myself and I've got some logs. Can you help me deal with my logs? So Jesus is working to develop this type of community where we're not shocked by other people's sin, where where we're not caught off guard by them self-disclosing sin and confessing sin to us, and and where we don't have to be the judges who are walking around saying, I wonder what's happening with that person, and that person, and that person, and that person, and hmm, you made this comment, I'm going to judge your heart based off of that comment that you made, or or, hmm, I'm going to judge the way that you spend your money because here's the assumption that I made about how you spend your money based off of looking at what you have or what you don't have. Jesus is developing this community where we're safe, where we're free of being wrongly judged by others because we're known and we're self-disclosing. And then the end of this statement, where we are, where we are safe to deal with our issues as we learn how to live out these new kingdom values. That's what Jesus is getting into, I think, here in verse 6. There's a lot of different ways this verse has been translated and and interpreted. Not translated, interpreted. There's a lot of different ways that people interpret this verse. Verse 6. I'll read it, and then I'll tell you what I think it means. He says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. What? Who's going to give their pearls to pigs? And what is the holy thing being thrown to dogs? And aren't dogs cute and cuddly and nice? And shouldn't we give dogs, like, sweaters and coats and houses and their own showers? I actually heard of someone recently who has a room for their dogs with a shower, a dog shower in their house. That's it. Dogs, in this context, are not dogs in the way that we view dogs. They're stray dogs. They're wild animals. They're dirty and they're gross. If you go to a developing country... Oftentimes, dogs roam the streets, and they eat scraps, and they're not people's pets. And pigs, why would you give pearls to pigs? I think that's exactly what Jesus is getting at here. These, these, this imagery here, I think what Jesus is getting at is saying that these values, the value of the Sermon on the Mount, the, the culture of the Sermon on the Mount, are for people who are calling me king. They're for my kingdom. They're for my community. This is a shared value system that you have. And don't expect those who aren't a part of the kingdom to adopt it. 
Don't, don't, don't hold your pearls. Hold what you value, the value of the kingdom of God. Don't hold that out before others who aren't professing followers of Jesus because they want nothing to do with it. And so don't judge non-believers based off of what they do. Assume that they're going to think that your Christian values are worthless and they're going to trample over them. And, and you don't have to be judgmental towards non-believers if you assume that they aren't going to have the same values as yours. These values are for the church. They're for the people of Jesus Christ. They're, they're our pearls. They're the holiness of God being worked out among the community of God. And so I think Jesus is saying here, this is a shared value system for the kingdom of God, for the church of Jesus Christ. Don't flaunt it out into the world, into the community, and expect them to conform to it. That's how I interpret that passage. There's many different ways. I wrestled through this passage with my kids, and they agreed that's what they think it means. Um, Avery, my seven-year-old, and Judah, my five-year-old, we read this passage together, and I just, I, I tested it on a five-year-old, because the Bible says, have faith like a child, right? And so, I said, what do you guys think it means? And it took a little bit of coaching in the conversation, but ultimately, they were like, well, why would you give something valuable to a pig? Exactly, you shouldn't, right? And so he, he's saying, I think Jesus here is saying that these are values for the kingdom of God. Don't expect the non-believing world to adapt to them or to assimilate to them. This is a shared value system for this community. Jesus is developing this community, a, a judgment-free space where we can deal with our issues. And look at how John says this. John heard this teaching. He was walking with Jesus, and he instructs his people, the first century church. He says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar, and his word is not in us. John heard the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He heard Jesus' teaching about how you judge others. You will be judged. Take the log out of your own eye before you address the speck in the other. And I think John here is saying that we ought to, in this community, we ought to admit that we're broken. We ought to admit that we have sin. In fact, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. There's just this assumption here, defining realities that we are broken sinners, and we develop a strong community when we all come to the table and we say, we are in need. We are confessing our sin to one another, as James also instructs us. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. As Jesus develops this community, he's teaching us not to judge the motives, the actions and the, the intent of others, but to assess ourselves, to confess our sin to one another, to create a safe community where we all know that we're struggling, but we are all struggling together towards Jesus, the sanctifier, the savior, the coming king, the perfect one, the, the, the man who could rightly judge others. That's the glorious thing about the gospel is Jesus is the only one who could properly know everything, who could properly make a distinction in every person, in every action, in every motive, and rather than judging us, he went to the cross in our place on our behalf and took the judgment that we deserve from God. And now we are to imitate that. We are to find salvation in that. 
Jesus is building a community. He's developing a people. He's developing a safe place. And so as we transition now to communion, communion is a chance for us to develop a judgment-free community as we declare our sin and demonstrate our need for a Savior, the substitute who stands in our place. That's why we do this every week. And and that's why we want you to actually come and and walk forward to the stations or visit the back one rather than passing it out to you. We we long to see our community in action demonstrating coming to the table. When you come to the table, you take the cracker, which represents Jesus' body broken for you. When Jesus said, "I I am the bread of life, eat of this and you will never be hungry again. When we take the cup, we remember Jesus' blood shed for us poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And so when we as a community get up and we walk to the table, we are publicly confessing to one another that we are sinners in need of a Savior. That Savior is outside of ourselves. And and we don't have to worry about the specks in other people's eyes because we are actually self-disclosing. I have logs. And we're not detailing out what that log is. You should get a small group of people that you tell about your logs. Right? You don't have to publicly disclose all of your logs to everyone gathered here, but when you come forward, when you go to the back and you walk up to this communion station, you are publicly declaring to everyone gathered here that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus, the substitute who stood in your place. Look at how Paul writes this in Romans chapter 14. To the church, he says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? There's the wrong judgment. It's despising, it's distancing, it's discrimination. Why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account to God. The truth is that All of you, myself included, will give an account to God. And this would be a terrifying reality without Jesus Christ. As you assess your own heart, as you become aware of how you discriminate and how you distance and how you judge and how you're hypocritical and how you can't fulfill the law's demands, this would be a terrifying reality without Christ. To stand before God, the perfect holy judge, and to be judged by him based off of your works, your thoughts, your intentions, your heart. It would be terrifying. But the gospel declares that if you are in Christ, all of his righteousness, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection has been given to you. Jesus, the judge, stands in your place. That's why we take communion. I'm going to pray, and then at any time you feel led during the next set of songs, feel free to visit the table. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, these elements are here to remind you that you have a Savior, and for us to confess publicly to one another that we are in need of that Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are, for what you've done. How amazing that we can stand in your presence and be judged by you and that judgment isn't condemnation, it's salvation. 
Because all of Jesus' perfection, his non-judgmental life, his perfect life, his non-hypocritical life, his life of pleasing the Father is attributed and given to us. It's credited to us. And so as Romans says that we will stand before you and give an account, in Christ our account is full. So Jesus, we celebrate you this morning. We thank you. I pray that you would break down our walls. Help us to assess ourselves. Help us to consider our logs. Help us to confess to one another. and Help us, through the power of your spirit, to develop a community where people can grow. For your glory, for our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray. Amen.